0: And do uh, turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Lamentations. I'll give you a moment to find that. If you don't have a church Bible, there's a pile at the back of the room. If you do have a church Bible, it is page 688, Lamentations chapter 3. And our passage this morning is chapter 3, verses 15 to 27. But we'll read a few verses from the beginning of the chapter just to help us in the bleakest book in the Bible. And yet one shard of Easter hope right here in the middle. Verse one, I am the man who has seen affliction under the rod of God's wrath. He has driven and brought me into darkness without any light. Surely against me, he turns his hand again and again the whole day long. And on to verse 15, he has filled me with bitterness. He has sated me with wormwood. He's made my teeth grind on the gravel. He's made me cower in ashes. My soul is bereft of peace. I have forgotten what happiness is. So I say my endurance has perished. So has my hope from the Lord. Remember my affliction and my wanderings, the wormwood and the gall. My soul continually remembers it and is bowed down within me. But this I call to mind and therefore I have hope. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul, therefore I will hope in him. The Lord is good to those who wait for him, to the soul who seeks him. It is good that one should wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. It is good for a man that he bears the yoke in his youth. Well, do keep that open in front of you, and let me ask you, what will it feel like, do you think, to fill your lungs with air for the first time in the new creation? Your remains have lain buried in the ground longer than anyone even knows. No one can read the name on the headstone. You barely remember the feel of fresh air on your face or grass beneath your feet, or the warmth of the sun on your back, all of it has been smothered by death. What will that first breath be like when it finally fills your lungs? We love to speculate, don't we, about the life in the resurrection. There is so much the Bible just makes us wait and see about. But I can't really get past this first gulp of air. You and I have never tasted a breath of air that isn't tainted by the stench of sin and death. Even as babies we're born into a polluted world, into polluted natures, our bodies are already beginning to decay. I wonder if we can even imagine how sweet it will taste when all of that bitterness is gone forever. Well, last week we prepared ourselves for Holy Week with this ancient book of poetry written to lament Israel's fall into sin and death at the hands of a God of love they turned their backs on. And the reality of life under his anger and curse, it was a harrowing, suffocating thing to read, wasn't it? And yet right in the dead center of this book, for about seven short lines, we come up for air, a little gasp, seven verses in the darkest book of the Bible, not tainted by the stench of sin and death and despair. And in this little shard of sunshine, we get a ray of hope that one day, despite the seeming triumph of the last enemy, the dawn will overcome. There is a new morning briefly in view where God's mercy is offered once again. And so the subject of this central chapter is the subject of Easter morning itself, hope. As we sink into the darkness with ancient Israel and we face the reality of the judgment we deserve and feel the reality of death in our bodies, we're left asking, is there any hope? For someone like me? And the poet answers, yes. Yes, there is real glorious Easter hope for the people of God, but only if you look for it in the right place. Our little passage this morning is a story of hope buried, hope remembered, and hope shared. First, we have to venture back into the grave and confront the horror of what we find there. Hope buried. Verses 15 to 18 tell us that when God is angry, human hope is stifled in the grave. Now, we often talk of Easter, don't we, as if it told a very different story. So many of our cultural images that we cling to are about latent hope and potential. Easter is when we think of spring and new life just bursting out of the ground all by itself. We think of eggs and bunnies and daffodils and all these things which are latent with potential life. But that is not the Easter story, according to Lamentations. There is no potential in us. No dormant life about to burst forth. Verse 18 is the lowest point in the chapter, but really it summarizes everything that's come so far. My endurance has died, perished, and so has my hope from the Lord. Look back at the start of the chapter and we find that this time, all of Israel, under God's judgment, is represented by one man. Presumably at an initial level, it's the author himself, the prophet Jeremiah, or some anonymous poet suffering under exile. But it's a depth of despair he faces, which bills over prophetically. It begs us to look for fulfillment in something even greater. Someone who turns his cheek to the one who strikes him, verse 30. Someone who bears the yoke of God's anger, God's discipline in his youth, verse 27. Last week in Israel's suffering, we saw echoes of a saviour who would bear the terrible curse they were sentenced to, the curse we deserve. Now that is built right into the poetry, right down to the wormwood and the gall he was given to drink on the cross. Verse one, I am the man, the one man who has seen affliction under the wrath of God. And what we see is that facing that rod of God's anger right to the very ends of what we deserve, that is a thing of terrible, bleak despair. Verse two, he's driven me into darkness without any light. It's a suffocating silence that he faces. God is angry, and yet God is completely absent. Verse eight, he won't even listen to me, though I cry out for help. He shuts out my prayer. Look at verse 44 later on. You've wrapped yourself in a cloud so that no prayer can pass through. It's as if this uncrossable chasm has opened up between God and us. He, in his holiness, has insulated himself even from our cries for forgiveness. And we're just praying into cling film nothing crosses the gap. And so if you turn back to the start of the chapter, this one man suffering under God's anger is pictured as a kind of hopeless death. He becomes like the dead, verse six, walled in, verse seven, in a place where there is no escape, dragging his heavy chains like Marley's ghost. Because death is what God's anger looks like. Death is what it means for us. Every time we confess the Apostles' Creed, like we did a few moments ago, we say those strange words, Jesus descended into hell. And verses 1 to 18 show us what that meant for Jesus Christ. Under God's wrath in both body and soul, he felt the full weight of despair that belongs to us sinful men. Listen to how John Calvin describes what Jesus faced. Surely he said, No more terrible abyss can be conceived than to feel yourself forsaken and estranged from God. And when you call on him, not to be heard. It's as if God himself has plotted your ruin Calvin is talking there about the Apostles' Creed, but I couldn't think of a better description of verses 1 to 18. And it ends in verse 17 with the most haunting words of all, this tormented, exhausted soul who says, I've forgotten what happiness even is. Isn't that bleak? Literally, I have forgotten goodness. Jesus is plunged into the pit that countless millions of human beings have been trapped in before him, but no human being has ever escaped it, a tomb with no exit. And so human hope dies. Verse 18, he has no right to ask anything of the Lord, no hope, even from God, because he bears sin in his body. It's a kind of forest fire moment. By verse 18, everything promising has been burnt to the ground. And it's only then, when everything is burnt down, only then that any seeds of hope from somewhere else can begin to germinate. And so we need to learn what he learned. We need to bury our human hope and never look at it again put it deep in the ground. What hope is there in the face of a holy God who is rightly angry with us? None whatsoever is there inside you and me. And as much as we might like to play strong when we look at that reality of sin and death in us, as much as we like not to think about it, death strips away all our pretending, doesn't it? The good God hates things which are twisted and sinful. It is under his curse. And this really is what that looks like. When God is angry, human hope is stifled in the grave. And then at last comes the gasp of air with those words, remember, remember, call to mind. Hope buried And only then, verses 19 to 24, hope remembered. Where do you look when you've forgotten what goodness itself is? Where do you look? Well, not inside here, not in what you've buried. These are the only verses in Lamentations that ever make it onto a kind of Christian calendar, aren't they? They're beautiful verses. You can picture them, I'm sure, on a thousand cheesy Facebook posts with a lovely photo of a sunrise behind them. But the key thing to notice is that nothing has actually changed in his circumstances. If we want to put these words into Jesus' mouth, we don't do it on Easter Sunday as he looks back. We do it on Good Friday. As he hangs in the jaws of death, his suffering hasn't gone here. What's changed is where he's looking. You see that in the language he uses. There's one thing that he can't help remembering, verse 20, because he feels it continually. The pain screams through his body and mind with every breath. That he remembers all right. That, verse 19, he begs God to remember. Remember, remember. But there's something else that isn't so easy to remember. It's different language, isn't it, in verse 21. This thing he has to drag back into his mind, literally bend it into his heart. And this truth, the one he has to fight so hard to remember, is the one real reason for hope. I remember this verse 21, and therefore I have hope. He says it again, verse 24, therefore I will hope. You see, all of this is the reason, what we've got in these two precious calendar verses is the one reason for hope. In the darkest despair any human being has ever experienced, not who we are or what lies inside us, but who God is. Because God is God, hope can always be found in Him. If we want to remember what goodness looks like, where happiness comes from, then we've got to stop all of our navel gazing and introspection and remember Him. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. And we know that because that is how God chose to reveal himself to these people right back at the very beginning of the marriage. These are the great covenant words that the poet's clinging to. This God we've betrayed, who we've been so unfaithful to, he is the Lord of infinite, inexhaustible mercy and love. He's a God who is faithful everywhere we are unfaithful. And so in the darkest despair, when all else is lost, the only substance of true hope has to be in him. What counts here isn't even really our ability to remember him, to think the right thoughts about him. No, the substance of his hope is the character of the one he's remembering. That's what counts. There was only one way for Jesus Christ to endure the cross faithfully, right to the end. And that was to trust in his faithful father, even as he bore our curse. He had to trust that God's commitment to his covenant would reach right the way down into the tomb. The seas would run dry sooner than God's steadfast love could ever be exhausted. He had to trust that the rocks would melt beneath the sun before God's character would ever change. And by clinging to that hope, one man was able to stand as head of his sinful people and bear it all certain that in the morning, God's mercy would be new and his faithfulness proven forever, beyond doubt. And so the poet says, in the face of everything, I will drag this one unburied hope back into my mind, the hope behind all hope, the hope that powered Easter. Who the one at the very Center of the universe is right down at the bottom of his own infinite nature. If God is God, then look at verse 24. It is possible to lose everything and still have hope. Have you grabbed hold of that yet? Deep down inside. If God is God. It is possible to lose everything and still have hope. The promised land was Israel's portion. Now that's been taken away, hasn't it? They're dragged off into exile. They've lost their land. One day they, like every one of us, will find that life itself is taken away. But if God is God, we can lose land and life and still have a portion. If that portion, which we treasure the most, is the God of inexhaustible mercy and love. That was Jesus Christ's hope in the face of death. And the only question is, will we share it with him? That's where our passage ends, isn't it? In verses 25 to 27, hope buried, hope remembered, and finally, hope shared. So far, this has been one man's song. But in verse 25, we get the first signs of a pattern that develops through this chapter. The one who suffered and sang begins to address us. It moves from I, in verses 1 to 24, to those and we, before the chapter ends in verse 48 onwards by moving back to I. So the hope he remembered is a hope he wants to share. Jesus' hope as he faced his death can be our hope. And so these last three verses are what his resurrection on Easter Sunday proves beyond doubt. Because Jesus rose, we can trust God's goodness to us. Notice the extraordinary word that echoes through those three verses. Can you spot it? I suspect if we read this book in Hebrew, it would be these lines actually that made it onto our calendar. I think they are the most wonderful ones in the whole chapter because the very thing he's forgotten in verse 17 is the very first word of each line amid all the darkness of the book. It stands out as if it's written in bright red ink. Tov, tov, tov. Good, good, good. God is the goodness. He's forgotten. The Lord is good to those who wait for him. It's good to seek him and find him because he is good to the soul who seeks him. What will it be like? To taste that first breath, the one you've waited so long to breathe, well, it will taste of God's goodness, undeserved love. And the wonderful thing about this promise here is that it is encouraging us in our despair to do something we find very hard, something we really need gentle encouragement for many of us, to seek God's in the context of this chapter means doing the hard, painful work of coming to him in repentance, lamenting our sin. Look ahead at verse 40. That's where you get the aim sentence of this chapter. What are we meant to do from this pit of despair? Let us, let us, let us, let us test and examine our ways, he says. Let us lift our hearts and hands to the God in heaven and say, we've transgressed and rebelled and you have not forgiven. We know that's what we need to do, don't we? And yet in our sin, under God's anger, sometimes it is so hard to say, Father, we've done wrong. Help me stop, help me change. Which is why we have this promise in verse 25. The Lord is good to the soul who seeks him. It's worth that painful work of saying sorry and coming to him. Don't be scared or too stubborn or too slow because you will find him good and full of compassion. It's good, verse 27, now while we're young to bear the yoke to taste a little of his discipline. Isn't that an extraordinary thing to say? It's good. It's good because he is good. Even when he's angry. Verse 32 tells us that because of his infinitely loving character, even in his anger, he is full of compassion. And when he hurts his children, verse 33 he doesn't do it because he hates them with his heart. Even when he's angry, he longs for our good. And so there is never a moment when the Christian is without hope. Never. You can always come back to him. And it's Easter Sunday, which proves that. Jesus emerged through the judgment of God and out into the daylight of a new morning, his trust vindicated. He'd taken our lament on his lips. He'd sobbed his last tear, frowned his very last frown. And now from the far side of sorrow, he holds out the strongest arm in all creation to haul us through that void. Do you see, friends? It was because God's mercy was new that morning, that darkest of mornings of all, that we know God's mercy can be new to us every morning. It's why he can say now, I am making all things new. And so for a Christian believer, there is no abyss so empty, no despair so dark that God's mercy cannot reach us. Sometimes even Christians do terrible things to themselves because they've come to believe there's no way out for them. So long as God is God, that is never true. When you are gasping for breath in the depths of shame, when your mental health feels so desperately bleak that you can't see how it will ever change, God's mercy will still be new every morning. He will still be good to you when you seek Him, deeply good. Even when your eyes close for that final time, when this body is at its weakest and most patently hopeless, God's mercy will still be new every morning because it was new to Jesus that morning. So wait quietly for his salvation and God will be good to you. We don't have to fight with fear for every last breath. We don't have to deny what's happening to these aging bodies because this is a hope that is real even when there's nothing but death and decay and despair inside us. It will let you rest your eyes and trust that it will not be night forever. Is that a hope you will have when you need it most? So long as God is God, the God who raised his son in faithful love, the sun will rise for us. And so Jesus' hope is a hope we share. Well, let's bow our heads and bless him for it. Gracious heavenly father, full of love, great with faithfulness, whose mercy never, ever runs dry, we praise you that out of that great faithfulness, you rescued the savior who stood in our place and took the hell of our judgment right down to the depths, Thank you that because Jesus truly rose from the dead, there is no darkness so dark that our hope is extinguished. So help us, we pray, when we need it most to see beyond our present despair and through the empty tomb of your King. And so to trust that your mercy will always be new for us for we ask it in his strong name. Amen.